hate change. There's what? so much change going on. Digital noise. There's new people. There's new new titles. They have new cats. It's going to be okay, Richard. I, I don't know, Michelle. I get confused and frightened by things. Everything's I'll, different. I'll be here for you. And, oh. you. and you know there's always, there's still that one, one constant. One thing never changes. What would that be? Beer. Yay! Welcome to Digital Noise. Hello, hello, hello. hello. You may mo- notice the dulcet tones of Michelle. <laughs> hello. Welcome to the team. Hi, I'm, I'm so glad to be here. It took, <laughs> it took a long time for me to get here, but now that I'm here, I'm really uncomfortable. It's okay. <laughs> that's, how, that's how we like things around here. A, a slight degree of dis-ease about everything. <laughs> dis-ease, not disease. Mm, Just nothing infectious. You. I so, think that should be our new motto. <laughs> <laughs> nothing infectious. <laughs> Get it on a t-shirt. So, as always, I am Richard, and uh, yeah, we we are your hosts for uh, for this week. Um, I'm Michelle Williams. Hello, hello, Michelle Williams. Yeah, people get terribly excited now because they're like, oh, people, new people. Isn't this exciting? But you know what? What we should probably you know start as we always do. Oh no! By delving into the. got mail yeah thank you torgo yes the letterbox is here yay, yay. Let, me, let me just drag those uh, the the emissives over here and we will start off with something from oh oh one for you one for you for me for you There's something for me that's yeah. so nice so welcoming thank they are you. well you are officially one of us now so uh yeah welcome to the tribe one of us now one you us. must kill one of our enemies and skin them and wear them Cool. Yeah, I always knew that was you know, it was a big plus for me. Yeah. Anyway, this is from no Neil Kelly, uh, who asks, uh, uh, what are some of your favourite movies that represent the historic strugglings of a uh, minority or out or outcast group? I asked this since I watched Pride today, and it was simply fantastic. Also, welcome aboard, Michelle. Thank Aww. you, Neil. And it's so... I'm so glad that you asked this question because it, it showed it's, it's one of those things that I can blah. <laughs> I'm new. Can it's one of those now? things you can blah. <laughs> I can blah. Blah. Um, one of those questions that kind of leads me into something that you guys will find out about me fairly soon. I pull the race card pretty quick, pretty quick and loose. So the fact <laughs> that this is about minorities, I'm like, really? Because I'm the black girl on there. You have to ask about minorities. What's that? What's that? So there's the race card for. I thought for he just because you were short. No, no, <laughs> no, no. <laughs> so you don't You're just the... overly large. Yeah, that's my problem. Yeah, see, exactly. I bang my head on stuff all the time. You'd be alarmed. Yeah, no, I don't think I would. Anyway, okay. Uh, so um, when I think of your question, I kind of go a sideways route about answering it, just because of the fact that I. Some of the historical things that I even think about in movies are just kind of historical moments in movie making history, kind of like that. And one of the people that kind of springs to mind when I start thinking about movies is is Whoopi Goldberg and the fact that she, um, when she was becoming an actress, I mean, past the comedy and things like that and trying to really break into acting and get good parts, that she really couldn't find a lot of parts that weren't, you know traditional black female roles and so one of the early roles that she got um what was a burglar i think it was not burglar um uh, not bur- burglar but the um, thief wow oh, burglar I thief. yeah, yeah. <laughs> one of the two no. I, I don't know what you mean no by. um yeah. it was uh, was it jumping jack flash i think maybe it was jumping jack flash that was sp- supposed to be a white man a white man was supposed to be cast that role and she kind of broke through that barrier and she's just like you know what first off it doesn't have to be a man it doesn't change anything in the in the um script or the movie if it's not a man and it doesn't and to that end doesn't have to be a white person so just as a pioneer of kind of breaking down those gender and racial um expectations maybe um and and pushing through some of that that's one of the people that i think of in 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 one of the one of those moments that I think of in movies. Yeah. 
I'm going to go with, with an actual film. Um, oh, you're going to go the easy route. Fine. <laughs> yeah, all right. Fine, whatever. Uh, I, I know where I'm beat, when I'm beat. Uh, 1937's The Edge of the World by uh, Michael Powell, uh, because it's about a, a, a community and a lifestyle that basically does not exist anymore. And that is the... Um, the crofters and fishermen of uh, the of St Kilda, which is basically an archipelago in Scotland, and and their lifestyle had basically not changed in about five six hundred years, and it midway through the twentieth century it died, huh. and it's a yeah it, it Powell was inspired by a series of documentaries about the crofters, um, and he wrote this story about you know them basically suddenly for the first time really being exposed to the twentieth century and not being able to withstand it. And it's a very respectful piece about a culture which he understands is clearly dying. Wow. Uh, he used a lot of the actual residents of St. Kilda um, as extras and to really inform the piece. And it's a very special little movie because, I mean, it, it, is a, it, it shows you how fragile a whole culture is. Uh, and it's also Michael Powell, so it's a beautiful film. And it's one, you know, I don't think it... I don't think it penetrated into America as much of it as the other stuff because the St. Kilda accent is pretty thick. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't know whether there's been a good release recently and it may need subtitles because i mean i've lived in scotland and you know the st kilda accent at the time was there'd be moments where it's like yeah no that's that's pretty broad dialect <laughs> so like when train spotting came out tra- train spotting makes me laugh because i've seen american releases of it which were subtitled yeah uh, which ruins one of the best jokes and that's that when they're in the club and the music's really loud uh-huh. it's subtitled in the british version because it's so loud and the voices are so low in the mix you can't hear them mm-hmm. so they actually subtitle that bit and it's a hilarious joke but if the whole film's subtitled then the joke is completely killed right right <laughs> and it's one of the best gags in there but yeah i'd say edge of the world because it's you know it's a uh, it shows you how fragile a culture is nice uh okay and we have uh, another question um this time from, oh, and I apologize for pronunciations, uh, Maciak Coog, uh, what's your favorite punch scene? Uh, what moment of a character being smacked in the face gave you the most satisfaction? Oh, yeah, you have to start with that. I, 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 think, st- you, I think you have a punch in mind, and I have to think a little bit. Um, I'm, I've got to go. Uh, I just have to go with Fight Club. The uh, hit me. Hit me as hard as you can. Sequence in in the parking lot, which is such a great scene at the time because it's so weird and quirky, and it's these two guys going through this like weird bonding moment that you're like, right. this doesn't make any sense. Why is he doing this? But it's kind of cool at the same time. And you're, it's the moment that takes you down the rabbit hole. Right. And then when you get to the end, and we won't spoil it for anybody who hasn't seen it. And if you haven't seen it, what, what is, is what are you doing with you? Yeah. Um, get up. Then get you know. You go back and you watch that scene again in a whole different way. And that, I just still think that is one of the great weird fight sequences ever. And that first punch and that whole, you hit me in the ear, is just yeah. beautiful. So, yeah, I'm going to go with Fight Club. Well, that actually made me think of my favorite Fight Club punch moment. So it's going to be Fight Club. <laughs> it's a fight Club All oh, Fight Club, all the time. Yes. Um, when... Um, when the narr- when our main character goes in to see his boss and mm. proceeds to beat the crap out of himself, <laughs> that punch is like especially as he's you're just like commentating on wh- what's happening and why and all that sort of thing. That was great, and, sp- and especially after the that final punch, uh, well, not final, but the epic punch where he goes all the way back into the to the glass bookcase and then he sits on the floor like he's defeated himself and then still comes up with that last punch. Right in the face. <laughs> Edward Norton is it. is such a phenomenal actor, and it's like, I mean, much as I I like uh, Ruffalo as the Hulk. I mean, can you imagine putting Robert Downey Jr. and and Ed Norton in the same space? Oh, that would be that would have just been uh, just ridiculously fun. That's, I, that's my my one complaint. Chomp, chomp, chomp. Scene <laughs> chewing. There would have there would have been you know gaffers and carpenters running in and like putting extra scenery up something yes. just so they could chew it exactly anyway time to close up the letterbox for another another week and shove it back under chris's uh, bed where it and torgo safely belong and time to move on to that moment that special moment are you ready it's your first time i, I don't think so it's I, I, i'm tentative and you know i'm fragile please be gentle with me <laughs> no i'm just gonna throw a bunch or of discs at your don't. head <laughs> i'm gonna throw a bunch of discs and a cat oh. at your head yes okay it's time for the reviews 
Huzzah! So, let's do start off. Do you have to make off. that voice? Yeah, we always do that voice. Oh, I always do that voice. Yeah, okay. You know what? That's what makes you guys interesting. We're, um, yeah, we're just going to have to do this. <laughs> we're, we're, you know, it, it's, it's that moment of brutality. It oh. is Dumb and Dumber 2. Oh, we have to start here? Yes. <laughs> Tough it out. <laughs> He's like, yes. The sequel. <sighs> if if sequel was needed, which it clearly wasn't. No, it wasn't. To the original, not particularly funny, Dumb and Dumber. Well, thank you for that. There's so many people that are such diehard fans of Dumb and Dumber. Are you one? Uh, no. Thank goodness. No, I'm not. So that actually doesn't make for for, for much of a, you know, t- um, back and forth or anything well, I mean, like that. Thing. But, How yeah. do you feel about the original Dumb and Dumber? I have no feelings about the original Dumb and Dumber. It was... I was... I'm never... I've never really been a fan of potty humor and just plain... Just gross-out humor, for the most part. And stupid people annoy me. So, (laughs) none of it was appealing. None of it was appealing to me at all. So, I just... So, I guess that's a feeling. Not of the, 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 the complete and total lack of appeal, you know, lack of feeling the appeal. Well, Don't this is it. the weird thing. I mean, you, this is the original team. You know, it's the Jim Carrey, Jeff, Dan, uh, Jeff Daniels, who, dear Lord, really two people who, who can do better work and are doing better work at this moment. Yeah, and the Ferrelli brothers, who, you know, are kind of... I don't like their films, but I almost respect them for, for their willingness to keep go, keep like, plunging on with being offensive. But this really is that the bottom of that barrel painful, painfully overscribed. Yeah, I mean, even if I can give Dumb and Dumber anything, is that for, for what it was, I think everything flowed much more naturally. There was a lot more chemistry and a lot more just... For for what that means, for what that's worth, um, that movie Dumb and Dumber is a better movie than Dumb and Dumber Two. It's Dumb and Dumber Two is seemed seemed strained and it seemed really pushed. Like they were very, they were, what is the word? They were just they were trying too hard. Yeah. They were trying too hard to recreate the magic, and to the point where they kept bringing in, of course, those homages to the back to the last movie and things like that, and even to the point where. Jim Carrey brought in one of his old, like, in living color characters, or probably from his stand-up comedy days, that they're trying so hard to make sure this is as entertaining for the viewer as the last one, that it all just felt so forced, and I, I was... I was just holding and it my start, head and the thing is, it starts with an utterly forced joke, which is the idea that Lloyd uh, Lloyd Christmas, um, uh, Jim Carrey's character, has been in a, a coma for the last twenty years, and that Harry, played by Jeff, by Jeff Daniels, uh, you know, comes and visits him every week, and it turns out that he's been playing a huge joke and he's fine all along, uh... and that, and it's like. Wow, you're actually telling us the, the lengths you are prepared to go to for what you think is funny, and it's not. And it really is like the Frellies have been uh, have been stuck in a coma for the last 20 right. years, have done nothing, and have gone, we're going to inflict another comedy about these two really stupid guys who yeah. may have brain damage, but we're never quite clear on it. Right. Um, and you have to remember the old jokes, because we're going to do so many callbacks. Mm-hmm. It's like, remember the guy with the bird? Uh, he's back. Right. It's like I no, I don't. I don't remember him. I, I yeah, remember well, the doggy van. It's it, back. It's back for you know, two seconds. Oh, the, the closest thing to a good good addition to this movie is Kathleen Turner, who it's just it's Kathleen Turner. She's always great. She, <laughs> she, she is. She can she can shine any turd you give her. Uh, turning up as one of their ex girlfriends who apparently has a daughter. Um, and you know Jeff falls in. Jeff wants to go. And, you know Jeff Jeff Daniels' character wants to go and find her because he thinks he's her father. And Jim Carrey wants to go and find her because he wants to bang her. Yes, and it's kind yes, of like it's just it's sense. all inappropriate. Yeah. But the thing is that if that's what you're expecting from the Frellies, then it's just all in. There's nothing inappropriate because it's what you expect. It's the appropriate thing. But it's there's not nothing elevating to be the game by. any. No. any it, it's not even elevating their own game any. And I mean, it's just it's just so flat. Nothing new is happening. Nothing exciting. Really, nothing really exciting or, or motivating is happening. There's nothing. There's really nothing that even 
if I wanted to, out of a bad movie, sometimes I can pull a line or, you know, or just say one little joke off to the side and just be snarky, haha. I can't even do that. There's nothing. There's nothing here. And I just, I was just really upset about the whole thing. Yeah, well, <laughs> speaking, speaking of... Rob Riggle was good, though. Rob Riggle, yeah, Rob was- Riggle turning up inexplicably yeah. as him, uh, as a Rob Riggle character and then said bro- said character's brother. Right. Uh, yeah, but the thing is, fun. it's so mediocre thought, that you forget... That's about as, about as fun as it can be. That you forget mediocre that Rob Riggle is in there. It's like, yeah. oh, this is... No, I don't, this, this is a film that I sense was greenlit in 1997. Like right after. And they forgot to do it. <laughs> They forgot yeah. to have anything to do. <laughs> they forgot to finish it. And they went, oh, shit, we're still contractually obligated to do it. Yeah. Damnation. Oh, how do we get this done? It's and terrible. I, it, no, no reason for this film to exist. No. Speaking of inessential <laughs> comedy sequels, we may as well get the twofer out of the way here. All right. <laughs> you, you picked a Jim Dandy of a week to start, didn't you? Yeah. Oh, and I didn't tell you my Dumb and Dumber story. Tell the, me the whole, the-, the whole Dumb... I didn't like Dumb and Dumber in the first place. And then, um, well, whilst a part of another um, movie review crew, um, I was duped one week into seeing the three worst films that week. And... Uh, <laughs> After and like seriously duped by them saying, "Oh, we'll be there with you," <laughs> and they abandoned me. And Dumber Dumberer was one of them, and the other one was Anger Management, and the other one was My Baby's Daddy. Those three films, so it's like kind of ties it back into Dumber Dumber. Those three films essentially drove me out of movie reviewing temporarily. <laughs> it's already gets better soon. Don't and worry. then, then this is the first thing I have to deal with is Dumb and Dumber too. I was like. Will the pain never end? Will the pain never end? No. Welcome back, Michelle. Which is the, Here's some more dumb. Which is the funny thing because Jim Carrey, in particular, has done so much better stuff, and we will actually get on something yes. later on. Yes. That will be, I think, will be fascinating to to talk about because it's a, a little bit of of several people's careers that nobody remembered. But let's get Horrible Bosses two out of the okay. way uh, because <laughs> if you've seen Horrible Bosses, uh, which was one of those films where you go, well, clearly. Somebody went, wouldn't it be, like, vaguely fun if we had, you know, kind of some guys who are pretty hot comedically at the moment. I was going, Jason Bateman and Jason Sudeikis and Charlie Day, and have them play slightly unpleasant characters, and then get people who don't normally play unpleasant characters, and have them go completely balls to the wall about it. Mm-hmm. Jennifer Aniston as a, an evil nymphomaniac. Um, you know, Kevin Spacey as, as just the world's worst human being. And let's he have Jamie. So well. Oh he yeah, does. he does. He's lovely though, apparently. Uh, of and, course uh, he and, is. Uh, you know, did a very good job as uh, running. Uh, I can't remember which of the theatres it was he ran in London, but did a fantastic job. But uh, you know, it's one of those things. It's like you get you get the opportunity to play bad, and you just have fun and you run off with it. So, <laughs> so he like, chews scenery too in a glorious I know. way. He really does. So you know, you come out of the end of of the first one where they kind of go, well, let's you know. We like our central characters, so we're going to kind of have them get away with it, and you know, it it it's a, a kind of very black comedy and very dark, but it's going to be okay. And then somebody went, "Well, that made a shitload ton of money. Right. What do we do next? Oh crap! Sequel? Do we have a plot? No, not really." So the three protagonists from the last movie decide that they're going to make lots of money off a shower buddy. Yeah, they're going to be their own. Horrible bosses. bosses! Because they are horrible, horrible bosses, bosses too. too! Or in fact, they're too really nice people. bosses, but they're terrible business people. Right. right. Uh, which is going to, there's the irony. <laughs> but, so they go and they, they talk to a business, a businessman and say, we really want you to invest. And he goes, absolutely. But unfortunately, the business person in question is Christoph Waltz, who is therefore a horrible human being. <laughs> and Chris Pine as his son, son, which is the world's least. It's like, no. What did his mum look like? Yeah, it's like, what was that? Seriously, Stripper? no. Stripper. Yeah, she must have been. seemingly. Yeah, a hooker. One of the two. <laughs> With a very square jaw, because I don't know, because Christopher Walsh has got quite a, a pointy face. Yeah, it's kind of a So I'm not quite sure what, this yeah. ha- what happened there. But they, you know, so um, they decide instead to just steal the idea and steal their business, so therefore, yet again, they have to get some revenge. Yep. 
kill somebody, commit some sort of crime. Yeah, whatever. in this whatever. case, kidnapping. Kidnapping. Uh, which, you know, does allow for the, the first really bright spot of this film when it really, pe- really, really perks up, which is Jamie Foxx returning as Motherfucker Jones. Which, yeah, how much time he spends getting those tattoos painted, I don't know, but I am impressed <laughs> by it. He's like, no, we're going to do every single one of them again because you know what? It's the character, and I get paid for every hour I sit here. <laughs> From the moment I leave my house. But I've got to say, you know, by comparison to, to Dumb and Dumber 2, this is a fabulous film. And, like, watching them back-to-back, it is a huge improvement. But that's only in that's, context. Yeah, exactly. I was just like, that's really not saying a whole lot, unfortunately. <laughs> because, you know, basically the, the way that the, way that the, um, the movie starts to um, build towards its... Um, eventual crisis point where they have to kidnap um, Chris Pine. Um, They are so annoying that once they cross over that bridge and Chris Pine becomes part of the circle of, of comedy of comedy, that that actually elevates the film a little bit because just because the annoyance level has to go down because you have a fourth, fourth person vying for, for space you know, just for a comedic room. So just as it was ratcheting up, though, I mean, my tension level was ratcheting up, <laughs> just being so annoyed with all of them. It's like, I like all of you guys. I really do. But I'm going to punch you all because you're so stupid. <laughs> and I really, really don't like stupid people. I really don't. It's hard for me to watch movies with really stupid people. And they're just... Ooh. Which is always <laughs> exacerbated by, because Jason Bateman's whole shtick is pointing out how stupid everybody else around mm-hmm. him is. That's Which, what he. That's what he does, and he does it extraordinarily well. Yeah, but that's all he's doing. Yeah, and it, like I don't that's, know. I mean, that doesn't do anything. Bateman, Stakus, and Day. I think were just. It's it's like they were so easy and comfortable with each other that there's nothing really interesting between right. them. There's no spark. Uh, Jennifer Aniston at least has some fun again with this part, you know. And I think after after getting you know cut out of all the nominations this year with, for Cake, I think you know she's. It's nice to see her just go. Fuck it, fuck it. I hate you all. Um, I got to say, there's a real surprise for me this time was Chris Pine. I really thought you know he's that he's got comedy chops. He does. You know he's he, which he, I don't think he's really necessarily shown before because there's still an element even in the Star Trek films like you know he's a pretty boy that can can have a little bit of gravitas but he yeah, really but he's really trying really to be somebody it. else though. You know, I mean he's trying to fill some shoes there in Star Trek and yeah. trying to you know be Shatner in a way so it's like which so he doesn't really have as much breathing room in that sort of part as that is somebody might think they keep giving him that as well i mean yeah yes. so you know in like every part he's been given is some is a hand-me-down and it's like mm-hmm. i really want to be, see him be given something that actually establishes him as him right but, uh, you know the guy the guy can definitely rock it when he really really puts his mind to it yeah one of the things that this kind of reminded me of um there was two movies um basically the hangover 2 which again was another film that it's like, I get to review films that I wasn't even here for. <laughs> um, the Hangover, I wasn't really a fan of. And then The Hangover 2 came, and I, and I actually was just like, I'm so unmotivated to see that, I just don't care. But um, the the thing that struck me the most with this one, um, like The Hangover, it's like, I feel like some of these sequels, I guess is my point, the, I feel like some of these sequels... Sorry. Chewbacca had to come and and say hi to everybody. Uh, you have to excuse you have to excuse the fact that that happened. Now, I'll, I'll it's the away. professionalism they admire about this show, by the way. It's what the fans come back for? Chewbacca's gone. Um, is Ocean's Thirteen? I think is one of the things that I, I it smacks me up. It's just like, oh, we had all such a had had such a good time together. Let's just friggin' do it again, and it doesn't really matter what's going on in the film. We're just gonna go <laughs> have fun, and that's what this kind of smacked up to me too. That's what happened with Ocean's Thirteen. Actually, became the original Ocean's Eleven at that point because mm-hmm. the, the the remake of Ocean's Chilling. Eleven is is like, oh, you know, this is kind of not particularly good Rat Pack movie that doesn't really work, but it's kind of entertaining, and they all go off and do their shtick, and they did it just so they could hang out together, right? And they actually make a good a, a good heist movie out of it. And then when they come back and they got to the, the third sequel, it's like, oh, we just want to do this so we can all hang out. It's like, yeah. that's what you were satirizing in the first one, you <laughs> idiots. Did you not get it? Yeah, I've got to say, I mean, 
if I the first one in the first horrible bosses movie is kind of fun. This is a, some real diminishing returns. It's got yeah. some bright moments. Uh, there is a, a really hilarious moment involving destroying the old trope of being able to drive your car through a locked fence, oh, which actually has a great stunt payoff. And actually, if you mm-hmm. watch the extras, there is a moment where they explain how they did that did that stunt. And they didn't necessarily explain it to the cast quite enough. <laughs> and there's some really, really angry cast members at that point going, really? Oh, that's what we're doing. Oh, fuck you. So, yeah, yeah. this is a film that exists. I don't think there's a need for a Horrible Bosses 3. Right. Yeah. Well, I hope that they don't do it. But, you know, <laughs> if they had too much fun together... Hey! Do it again. No. Um... <laughs> Okay, so, well, something I caught uh, this week that, that you didn't have a chance to. Um, a, an absolute horror classic, undeniable. Uh, th- yeah, this is Mario Bar- Barber's... Um, <coughs> Mario Barber's... <coughs> seemingly. Nice. Mario Barber's... Yeah, yeah. This is Mario Barber's Black Sunday. Uh, 1960, Ita- seminal Italian Gothic. So many films are influenced by this. Black and white, so it's before Barber can really cut loose with the gore. This is this is high gothic of the greatest level. There are, you know, dead bodies that suddenly spring back to life uh, because a small amount of blood is dripped on them. Burned witches, uh, you know, and, and so many scenes that other people clearly watch. This is a weird little transitional film because it is very much, you know high gothic of the stuff that you know uh, Roger Corman was doing with Vincent Price right into the right into the late 60s mm-hmm. you can feel the influence going into that but this is also extreme for a black and white movie there's a, a high level of, of gore to it and there's a few moments where where hands are erupting from out of out of graveyards and you will see references to that to this day those so- those shots this is the first time you really see them it, you know a barber obviously becomes a master of the genre but this is the first time he really gets to kind of express what it is that he he's doing. Um, you know, it was uh, you know initially banned because of his uh, a point of release. Um, it's got some great costuming. <laughs> if you are a fan of of, of, of classic eighteenth eighteenth and nineteenth century weird costuming in Italian dramas, this is for you. Nice. Uh, but uh, you know the. The the real one of the big things with this film is this really the first major appearance by Barbara Steele, uh, you know, one of the great horror actresses uh, as the witch uh, Asa Vada, you know, wonderful, weird, creeping yet very sexual, charismatic performance by her. Yeah, I mean, this is this is a classic. It's been out a bunch of times before. You know, this is not any breaking news that you know, but this is the first time. It's, I think this is the first time it's been out on Blu-ray. It's a it's a beautiful restoration by Kino Lauber. Well worth picking up for that. The opening scene alone of the of the uh, the the burning of the witch, absolutely worth your time. You, you, are you big my big Barbara fan? Um, no, not that I know of. It's it's not because I dislike Barbara. It's just I just had no frame of reference. I I don't think I've seen a film. Oh. So this is good for my horror education because I do love my horror. Uh, but then again, you know, for, for the longest time, I, I won't say that for the longest time, but especially through my 20s, I had a really weird, um, really weird rule with my movies. I wouldn't watch anything in black and white. So it's like older movies. <laughs> I just wouldn't watch them. If they weren't in color, I just wouldn't. I was. A st- it was a very strange phase. I don't know why I was doing it. You've, it you've, just... you've got over it now, though. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> presuming. But, but I missed out on a lot of early watching of a what lot of stuff. What about sepia? It might as well have been black and white as far as I was concerned <laughs> it, at that time. Hand-painted. <laughs> yeah. Eh. Uh, no. <laughs> it's just like, why, why can't they pay for color? You know? <laughs> so, Ooh, well, um... Um, Gone with the Wind. I didn't Shot. watch that for a very long time. Actually, I only watched it well, because good. I had a I had a book report that I had to do, and I didn't want to read the book. That's the only reason. And it, wasn't it colorized? Yeah, well, yeah. Well, yeah, no, it, got it was. It wasn't. In, so it I was thought. actually hand painted. Well, it was shot in black and white, which is why all the colors are so are so inc- so incredibly vivid. They actually hand painted the film because well, they no were idea. insane. I had no idea. I just knew it was in color. Then. Yeah, no, yeah, it's a, yeah. That's that's a, it is. That's a, it's one of those cool. weird ones. <laughs> anyway. 
Uh, moving on to something that's probably going to make a lot of people extremely happy. We keep getting uh, a lot of director uh, retrospective box sets uh, over the past. You know, <laughs> are you hugging that? Yes. <laughs> it is the Frank Darabont collection Blu-ray. Now, this is not the most uh, comprehensive uh, set that you're ever going to have seen. Uh, this is uh, Shawshank Redemption Green Mile split across two discs because mm-hmm. it's, you know, endless. Um, and <laughs> <laughs> what it is, it's, it's a long-ass film. Endless. What the source material was endless. Well, I know, but still. <laughs> but still. 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 Um, and... Um, the film that Jim, one of the films Jim Carrey did in the in the, the meantime after Dumb and Dumber, uh, the Majestic, which is kind of one of the uh, you know great forgotten films of, the, uh, of both him and Darabont. But you know, I think to a certain degree, you know, Shawshank ends up on so many top one hundred lists. Yes, in the top ten. Yes, that it's not even funny. Uh, there's so many fans of the Green Mile. Again, not even yes. funny. Yes. Um, you know, they, these are. There's I, a problem with any of that? Yes. I, okay. Oh, oh, oh apparently okay. there's a problem. Here we go. Uh, uh, <laughs> yes. Cue up the hate mail, folks. <laughs> I am not a Frank Darabont fan. What is wrong with you? Sh- shut up, Cox. <laughs> You're not on this show. <laughs> so, that's no, my okay. Thought. What is it's wrong? Not, with you? It, there's nothing wrong with Frank Darabont. Uh, no, I didn't. I didn't say there was. I was no, no, I'm, wrong I'm with saying, you. I'm saying. Okay. Oh, okay. Well, this is, we we can get onto that list later. <laughs> but there's nothing wrong with Frank Darabont. I just find him. I don't know. It, there's. I don't. I don't. I don't feel there's an edge to what he does. He even takes quite edgy material and makes it universally acceptable. And I, you know, it's kind of populist it's not even that it's populist it's it's that there's no rough edges to it even the end of shawshank which has a guy crawling through a shit pipe it's like well yeah but you make it sound kind of adorable like a bedtime story like that's my thing with darabont is i don't really you know there's no grit to his film for me uh, the only reason why I can... I can why you're see, not throwing something at me. Yeah, it's like the only reason why I can see maybe something of that, an opinion like that, would be because most of, um, just about every movie that I've ever seen of his is so beautifully shot and, and just crisp and almost like perfected on every level that, yeah, it doesn't seem like there's a lot of grit going on. It's all very... If it needs to be a little misty and a little hazy, just to make it softer and things like that, to make it more gorgeous than it is, it's like between him and the cinematographer, it is just mostly just gorgeous, gorgeous pictures, gorgeous frames going going um, across the screen. Um, so I can see how you wouldn't feel that grit necessarily. the The situations are tense. That, that situation that you're talking about, it's like if you if you go ahead and let it go, and put yourself in the situation, you smell the crap. Yeah, you smell it, and it feels good when it comes out of the other side. Yeah, do, and that's. But maybe it's just not as you know the crap isn't all the way up your nose enough. I don't know. What's, I think what's wrong that with I you? think that yeah, well, <laughs> that may be it. I mean, you know, I compare something like you know either of his two prison films with something like Scum. Where you know you, you know you you have to wash that film off you. I mean that that is, that and, is and that's tr- what you like. Well, I, you know, I just feel that's slightly more authentic. I think he's he almost has a kind of uh, he's a little bit too Capra esque for me. And I think that I think Capra Capra didn't try this kind of film because I think it was it it really was not in his wheelhouse. Whereas I think the Majestic is the is the kind for me that's. I, that's actually my favourite film in this box set, which is weird because nobody remembers the Majestic, which is you know his tale of you know of the the Hollywood blacklisting effectively. Right. And Jim Carrey plays a scriptwriter. That's the thing. Don't even have to tell everybody what you know Shawshank and Green Mile are about because everybody right. remembers that. Right, right, but right. you know the Majestic is is one that very few people have seen. Um, he plays a a screenwriter who accidentally gets caught up in the blacklisting. Uh, in the fifties, because somebody suspects he may be a communist, when in fact he went on a date with a girl and she went to a socialist affiliated thing uh, event, and he's like, "Well, I'll go. Might get laid." Uh, and you know who hasn't? 
honestly. Um, <laughs> Not me. But go ahead. I'm sure many of the guys I've ooh. dealt with have. Yeah. Of course, uh, yeah. of course, it's me. But, uh, but I have not. Have but, you know, that. he has a car crash, um, gets amnesia, and gets adopted by this small town who wants to believe that he is the lo- their lost son, the, uh, the, the boy that went to war. And it's so... It, it, it's such a fairy tale that I think Darabont's style for me works much better in this context. Gotcha. I can understand that. Um, what I was what I was seeing you squinting my eyes at you as you were speaking. I really wanted to let you have your piece. I wanted to jump in like three or four times, but I was just like, nope. No, go right ahead. <laughs> no. Um, my um, Mine, the way that I see Frank Darabont in general is he's he's a very romantic type of person. I mean, it's like everything is seen in kind of a romantic sense, and I think that that is what comes across in a lot of his directing. He is very... It's about the magic of the thing. It's about the magic of filmmaking. It's about the magic of the story and the, and the tale and things like that. And I think that comes across very much in his filmmaking. So I can understand your point of maybe that if it's a... Um, if it's a film in a prison, maybe that's not the best sort of thing. But the thing is, is that as you were talking about the majestic, it's interesting what she decided was was the film. It's like you said, the film is about a, a it was more about the Hollywood blacklist. I don't even think that's bar- that, that the bookends of the film. It's not the film. This film and and, and as I was watching it again. Um, it was one of his, besides Screen Mile, which, again, it's a source material situation, I understand. Um, it's kind of a meandering story. It kind of goes along its little route in a very strolling through the daisies, looking <laughs> like <laughs> kind of in a, in a flouncy sort of way, which actually annoyed me annoyed me a little bit. I, I would have liked it to have been a little bit tighter, and I, I think it really could have lost about yeah, 20 to 30 minutes. Oh, oh it can lose half an hour without... I always go back to that Spielberg fine. quote where he said, you know, less than 90 minutes and people are going to want their money back. You get above two hours, and you better have, and you better have Lawrence of Arabia. Yeah, and this is sure as reason. hell is not. Yeah, you better have a good reason, and there was not a good reason there. Um, but um, so this, so you, you're saying it's about the the blacklist thing. I don't even think it. I think it's barely about that. And the the thing about Shawshank Redemption um, that you talked talked about um, more about the Shawshank Redemption than um, Green Mile, but that's not really even a prison movie. I don't even really think about that. That's that is about a triumph of of spirit. It's not really about prison, you know. So it's like the tone of it doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to be gritty or anything like that. And the whole blacklist thing again. I I think it was it is this love story between. And what's interesting is it's a love story of film um, and a town and their people and who they embrace and how how it gets embraced, and then. And how the, how that main character goes through all of that. I think that's the thing. I mean, it's really it, the blacklist is it, stuff is pivotal to it because it's about two different Americas and two different how two different Americas uh, feel about film. Because sure. there's this horrible kind of paranoia uh, in the blacklist sequences. Yeah. And I think the problem is that it gets. It, it kind of, the, the way that the blacklist stuff becomes a bookend is because it meanders so much in the middle, right? You know, and you could you know pull a good 30 minutes just out of the Maybury stuff in the middle yeah. and just lump it back down together and keep the bookend stuff and it would feel more balanced. I think that's that, the thing. I think that, right. that stuff all kind of yeah. gets a little bit lost. Yeah. But I think, you know, like I said, I think this is where the, his his fairy tale aspects, I think it, it works best with that material. But is that an editing issue? Did he have Final Cut? I mean, it's like, those are... those. Those are questions we don't necessarily know the answers to. I, I well, I mean, he's going to go in with a script, that, but he, he always makes overly long films. I know all his films. That, that that I, I understand. I do. I think he wants to be Spielberg him. so badly. I think Why? he wants to be. I think he I wants to be mid nineties. But I think he wants to be mid nineties on with Spielberg oh. so badly. But even mid nineties on with Spielberg still has that down and dirty TV director. I'm going to go out with bit. a truck yeah. and Dennis yeah. and Dennis Hooper, and I'm going to. I'm, I'm going to bootleg this damn thing. He's right. got those instincts, and I don't yeah. think Darabont has them. I think he's he is a 
big film director, and I think sometimes he it, gets a little it just feels, you know... Yeah, it gets a little epic. And I, I think it, maybe he gets epic in the way that I kind of... I kind of enjoy, I guess, because he's just, um, and I, I guess I, I will, I will say that my, that along with his, his kind of rose colored glasses about movies and filmmaking and, and the, and the magic of film, I kind of have the same about him. I actually had the privilege to interview him several oh. years ago and he's so lovely. And I, I was like, I don't think, I don't think I've ever fallen in love with an, with an older man like this before. <laughs> he's so Wonderful, because his eyes light up when he talks about his film. When he talks about his passions, he just he just lights up, and so you know he's passionate. You know that, you know he's doing what he really wants to do. It's kind of the same way I feel about. Um, um, I have to come back to it. Why can't I remember his name now? Um, uh, Give me a clue. He, he makes video game movies uh, mostly. German. Oh, Uwe Boll. Yeah, Uwe. He's the same way. He's like a kid, and he loves it. And it's like, I feel so... For Uva, I feel so bad about the way things happen for him. But, I mean, they have the same sort of light, and I really like seeing that light, and I, I really feel like... It's like, when it comes through, when it comes through in their films, which it does, you know, it's like the fun that they're having and the, the passion that they feel does come through. I just... I just fall in love with them I, for it. It's funny, because I've, I've spoken to people who've worked in the same same studios as Uwe, and they all say, you know, it's nobody works harder and nobody is, is more prepared to go, you know what? I can't get it done exactly the way that I wanted to do it. Fuck it. I'm just going to do it. I'm just going right. to throw everything at the wall. And um, sometimes that works. Sometimes that doesn't. doesn't. Of course. Um, of course. But yeah, you know, he, he and he is a complete maniac and apparently is every cliche that you've ever heard about him. He just he's just this huge cartoon of a man. He's um, he's you know, so sweet. He's a loon. <laughs> he's wonderful. <laughs> although yeah, although so. Frank Dar- Frank Darabont, I can't imagine him and Uwe Boll should do a collaboration because Uwe Boll doesn't know how to make a film over 90 minutes long. <laughs> So, so I think that it would come out to be just the right. It would length. just. It would. It would be enough the, grit, enough enough polish, and enough time. And just and you know, Darabont's got enough competence to kind of like Real smear over whatever it is, whatever D and D movie it is that Uwe's <laughs> making this week, exactly. whatever whatever unreleasable turd of a film. <laughs> Although the funny thing is that you know, like he's the two of them have have launched so many careers by doing films of this scale. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, whatever scale they're working on, like whether it's this micro budget stuff, and like you, you, we're just going to come and work our asses off. Right. You know, I, I, I admire their impact more than I necessarily want to sit through their films. Fair. Fair <laughs> the enough. Darabont, the Darabontists are probably like banging down the door as we speak. You will get to learn. There's a lot of people who go, "What the fuck have you got that Englishman on for? He talks nonsense." But <laughs> anyway, I'm actually going to go uh, two films very quickly. Um, go the, for it. That uh, I saw that uh, you didn't have a chance to. Um, the uh, first, <laughs> because the world called for more Green Street hooligan films. <laughs> Apparently, mm. yes. Uh, I, Green I Street Hooligans Three Underground, uh, released in the UK back in 2013. Yeah, this one's been sat on the shelves for a while. As uh, Green Street Three never backed down. Um, have you seen Green Street Hooligans? No. It is one of the weirdest little films uh, that I can remember seeing. Um, that it is... Um, the, the basic idea is that this American student gets kicked out of Harvard um, and goes to London to hang out with his quite well-off fr- um, uh, brother-in-law and then starts hanging out with a bunch of football hooligans. And they go and get into fights and he becomes... Bit of a, he becomes a real man because he gets into fight. Yeah, <laughs> some of its messages are a bit weird because it lionizes. Uh, I mean, it, it's it's weird because it's very accurate about the um, the London the, the the football crew culture, which was extraordinary, extraordinarily violent and very complicated. Um, but then it kind of lionizes it, and you're kind of like, no, these guys are just assholes and thugs. Um, weirdly, this has now become a full fledged franchise, and this is the weirdest addition to it ever. Uh, that one could possibly imagine because after the second one again really concentrated on the reality it's a bunch of guys meeting up in the street and beating the shit out of each other and trying to find a plot in there mm-hmm. it's like well there isn't much Green Street Hooligans 3 um, 
brings in one of my favourite martial arts <laughs> actors, Scott Adkins, and goes, well, let's take the plot from uh, Jean-Claude Van Damme's Lionheart and put this in here, and that he takes his crew and trains them all to be mixed martial artists because his brother's been beaten to death in a fight. And it's kind of, it's, it's... What? It's so weird. <laughs> it's such a change of tone because all the social realism goes out and basically you get a bunch of people going... Oi, calm down, you muppet, and then doing Taekwondo. It is a fucking strange little film. Um, it, it is worth watching because Scott Adkins is, you know, he's a really good martial artist. Okay. Um, if you like the first two of this franchise, or more importantly, if you like Ninja 2 Shadow of a Tear, uh, <laughs> this is probably for you. Uh, this is Scott Adkins is just gets involved with weird reboots. Uh, his, his, his additions to the Universal Soldier franchise as well. Which take it from, you know, fun '80s sci-fi action films uh, into weird metaphysical ruminations on the nature of violence and humanity. They're really good. They're nothing to do with the other films, and this is the same thing. This is a really, really weird little movie for all the wrong reasons. Um, <laughs> but talking about British violence, hey, because that's what we do, apparently. Uh, I, this is actually my, my pick of the week, uh, without a shadow of a doubt. This is the 1978 animated adaptation of Richard Adams' Watership Down, which is a film about a bunch of rabbits. I living. you were saying Green Street Hooligans was your pick of the week. I was like, all right, Richard, get off! <laughs> away with you, you Cox, away with you. You're not on this episode. <laughs> Go smoke or stand in rain or something. Out, <laughs> out, you little heathen. Anyway, uh, yes, this is... Um, yeah, it sounds like this is kind of like, oh, there's a bunch of buddies living in a uh, living in a warren. No, this is one of the most extraordinarily violent, unpleasant, uh, and, and nature red in tooth and claw uh, films you will ever see. Because it is ext- even though the rabbits are anthropomorphized um, and talk, uh, they they are rabbits. They are creatures that are used to well, you know, they get eaten a lot. Because they, you know, they are small and crunchy, and everything else has teeth. They uh, are hated by farmers. They are chased. Um, they attack each other. They, and the basic uh, the basic plot. And there's a lot of great British character actors who provide who provide voices here. But the basic plot is that they are forced out of their their warren um, and try and find a new home, and end up coming across other other rabbits who are in an extreme, basically fascist dictatorship under an extremely tough, violent, battle-scarred old rabbit. Um, this is a masterwork. Wow. This is one of... It, it It was sold at the time as a kid's movie because it was animated. Right. Um, and it didn't help that Art Garfunkel's uh, version of Bright Eyes was, like, everywhere for six months. This is, you know... This is a beautiful film. It is dark and complicated and demanding of the audience and the the, char- there is, the characters there are heroic characters but they are not simplistic heroes mm-hmm. there is more nuance in the the in the characters of the rabbits than you get in most scripts um it is also extremely violent you know and suddenly like you know, a char- you know, character you got used to oh i just got eaten by a dog or he got hit by a car and one of the first really important shots is some roadkill Nice. Uh, this is this is a, a stunning, stunning film, and I, you know, if there'd been an animated feature category at the Oscars uh, that year, if this hadn't have picked it up, there would have been outcry. Uh, this this is a great release from Criterion, well overdue. Uh, some really nice extras, not a huge amount, um, but there uh, there's a really nice uh, interview with Guillermo del Toro talking about how important this film was to him how revolutionary it is visually it was the first uh, uh, animated feature presented in dolby and the mix on this is gorgeous the, 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 one of the best things is the beginning uh, they actually explain the mythology of the rabbits because mm. the rabbits the rabbits have a god uh, and they have a death figure called the black rabbit when the black rabbit appears in a few scenes you're like holy crap this is Dark. Uh, no, this is this For is some a. Some reason I feel like I did see this like back in the day. Yeah. Like back when I was a kid or something like that. For some reason I feel like it's like now that as you continue to talk about it, it's just like, huh? 
weird images are coming back in my head. Did you? Did it. you? So did you? Have. Do you remember watching a film about rabbits and being deeply traumatized as a small maybe, child afterwards? Maybe. And the ending is extremely sad, and you're just like, "Why do, do my parents hate me?" <laughs> there, there were a lot of parents who took their kids to see this film and were. A little shocked, I think, right. or sent them out on a. Who uh, sent them out and go? Oh, go watch, go watch that nice little animated film about the rabbits. And their kids come back and go, "Why would you do this to me?" Yeah, my, my father in particular was big on. Um, both my parents were college educated, and you know, um, my mother was a math, had a master's. My father was a double major in physics and math, so it's just like super intelligent people in my house, and. Um, so we did actually watch back in the seventies a lot of um, British uh, miniseries and things like that. So it wouldn't have it really wouldn't have been outside of the box at, uh, for me to have watched that as a kid. I really, if you, uh, I really I, recommend that I, this is I, something you you, you catch up. up on because yeah. it it is a you know it it's it's kind of fallen through the cracks and. I'm really glad Criterion have picked this up and and done such a beautiful job on on getting a you know a, a really really it's one of those films that animation people know about. Mm-hmm. And it's like uh, recently they did a, a, a really nice re-release of Jan Svenkmeier's Alice, and I think that bought that back for a lot of people. I think there's a huge amount of material uh, on, in the vaults, which I think they really need to turn their eye to that. I think they they've delved into enough stuff. And they're just doing enough re-releases at the moment of their own back catalogue. I think now they need to find some more obscure animated stuff and get that out into the audience because it really, really demands it. Far less obscure. <laughs> far less obscure <laughs> on the animated front. Much more interestingly animated. Not interestingly, but much more technologically advanced. Yeah, animation. and slightly weirdly controversial for a film that six months ago everybody was just like, oh, I really like that. Oh, that was surprisingly better than I thought. The Oscar-winning Big Hero Six, and yes, you are all going Lego Movie, and at at this point, Brian is somewhere going Lego Movie, and he doesn't know why. Uh, So, are they just mad because Frozen was like the big thing last year, and then it's like then it's Disney again? Is that are we just upset at Disney? I I mean, what I think it's the I I, I think it's one that I didn't watch the Oscars. Shoot me. Um, I I think one it's that the Lego Movie. Didn't oh, the Lego get movie. nominated. That yeah, I was about to say it's like well, Lego wasn't there, so of what was there, what what's the problem with that? I think that's the thing. I think it's the fact that Lego the Lego movie wasn't okay. wasn't nominated. Yeah, although so that there, is an outrage. although there is a you know I'm I'm firmly in the um, in the camp of either box trolls because I thought that was you know I I think I think it, it was Lyca's time mm-hmm. as much as anything else. I think that Lyca Studio does great stuff. Uh, or How to Train Your Dragon 2, which got robbed last... How to Train Your Dragon got robbed. I think How to Train Your Dragon 2 is like, come on, you just hate them or what? <laughs> but no, this is the you know, this is the the uh, the Marvel film people don't know is a Marvel film because this, isn't, this is a very, very loose adaptation of a very obscure Marvel comic. Um, uh, Guardians of the Galaxy. You know anyway, it's like, <laughs> it happens. So what's the story? <laughs> Oh, the story is about a a boy named Hero, um, who which is, is a good name if you're going to be if you're going to be the protagonist. Yeah, and and they are, um, and the story is based sometime not into too distant future, but in the future in um, San Fran San Franocchio. Yes. So it's like, uh, yeah, the the Japanese have invaded San Francisco or just taken over because Little Tokyo is already kind of kind of big anyway. But anyway, um, so he is um, a 14-year-old who is a genius and had already graduated from high school. And his big love is battle robots, and that's that's his big passion. And he has a um, he has a brother who's also very very technically um, savvy and very smart, um, who tries to mentor him into getting more into. Um, what we would call nerd stuff, which would be more um, academia with his robots and things like that. Then a tragedy happens, which um, which kind of pushes um, pushes hero to become a hero. Aww. And because <laughs> um, I'm not going to spoil it, but um, so he uh, he has to bring a team together to um, bring down this. Bad kabuki, the, the kabuki mask villain, <laughs> <laughs> the villain in the kabuki mask. Um, 
and one of the one of the superheroes of one of the part of this gang is a robot that his brother had put together, which is a medical service robot, kind of a, a robo nurse who is big and squishy and and full of helium, but has a you know carbide spine and is very strong but very lovable. Yeah, Baymax, I think, is is just such a great design. I mean, it's it's fun because the other character, you know, the 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 team of Big Hero Six, there are actually re- some really nice design work in there. But Baymax is just like there's something instinctual about just finding Baymax appealing, right? And they they had a big inflatable Baymax at the Alamo Draft House, and the number of really? adults who would just it. just wanted to run over and hug him, <laughs> and you're and you're just like stop that, you know, but, you know, but you know you wanted to. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, I think that that was one of the things with some of these um, anamorphic anamorphic, um, robots that have become so popular. It's these these things with big eyes that have no mouths. So it's like you can... um, And it was kind of like what was done with Hello Kitty uh, in Japan. It's this thing with big eyes, but it has no mouth. So that... So that you can put your own emotion upon it, and and it can reflect what you want it to reflect, and so it, it ends up being more of a connection. And so they did it with Wally. Um, they did it with um, there was one other one, the robot with the big eyes um, that Disney did not too long ago. But yeah, so they're doing these these robots that they're not trying to make them overly human looking. They're trying. They're actually kind of taking a little a little hint to make them in such a way that there's more of a connection that is created by the audience. Their own emotion creates the connection. They're not having to force it. Yeah. And so that makes it really interesting. Yeah, they know what they're doing. I mean, if I have one problem with this film, I think it's a little by the numbers in places. Oh, yeah. I mean, and it's interesting because it has actually a lot of the same plot beats as How to Train Your Dragon. But I don't think it, uh, pardon, pardon the pun, but I don't think it soars in the same way. Right. You know, uh, when, you, when you have, and the, both of them have a death of a core character at a very pivotal moment. You know, in this, it's kind of like, well, okay, well, now I have my motivation for right. the character moving on. Mm-hmm. In How to Train Your Dragon, I was just like, no, and you have this really moving, tragic funeral sequence, and like it, it just felt that pushed a little bit further. So again, you know, not to drag up the Oscars again, but mm. yeah, I mean, this is a, this is a solid addition. I think nobody expected anything from it, and it's become a massive overachiever. I think Baymax does. Yeah, Baymax gets you in, but it, yeah, there's there's a lot here to really like. There's a lot to like. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is a, this is you know, in the grand tradition of second tier Disney. I think this is top of the second tier. This isn't. This isn't going to go down as you know, like the 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 best of the uh, of the, the Pixar stuff. It's not going to go down with you know the the kind of original fairy tale stuff, or, or even some of the you know, Disney's '90s rehabilitation. But this is a solid little solid little film. Yeah, it will, think- you'll sit be able to sit down and all watch it, and everybody will like it. Yeah, and I think that um, the fact that there are some um, some voices in here that are familiar. Um, that that kind of brings you into like James Cromwell. I mean, he's one of those character actors that has been everywhere for a long time. So you hear that voice, and that's something that well, at least the adults can connect with. And then kind of in a fanboy sort of way, Alan Tudyk. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's like you, you're it's like, oh my god, is that washed? Do I, do I, what what just happened? You know, it's just like all of a sudden there's a little connection for the fanboys and the fangirls. And then there's um, some of the the newer people that have that have come into it. Um, uh, Damon Wayans Jr., which is who's right now pretty hot as his dad. I'm the, sorry, the, the he, en- is ha- he is his father. The, the endless was- cavalcade that the, 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 that is the Wayans. How many are there now? It's like ninety five thousand. I, I don't know. Is there? A, are they he, injection molded? They just did. They just did a clone of his father. I mean, did you, have you looked at them side by side? Or did Damon? I don't think they can a, be in the same room. Here's a theory. Because Damon kind of disappeared for a while, mm-hmm. and then his son appeared. Mm-hmm. Oh, All grown up. Yeah. Oh, myster- mysteriously, actually, Damon. Yes. It's just Damon. It's it's like cavalcade of vampire Damon. Yes. He is now officially a thousand, but always <laughs> always looks twenty five ish. Because it's that's it's a clone. It's a clone. It's it's it is. It's just him. Yeah. Uh, and Maya yeah, Rudolph, and- who always does a great job. She's great comedically. Great has great timing. Yeah. 
And, and, and Scott adds it as well. <laughs> as Baymax. You like that sort of thing. He has thing. a good voice for it. He does, yeah, I, yeah, Baymax really, like, I, I, and they, they're clearly setting this up. I don't know if they're setting it up for a sequel, but I would be highly shocked if it's in the next six months we didn't get a uh, Big Hero 6 animated series uh, appearing on Disney XD. I, w- I would be you know shocked because there is endless material mm-hmm. there's a lot of good supporting characters that that you know they ha- clearly have a lot of space to be you know rounded out mm-hmm. I think we'll we'll see and, and now I think there will be a sequel because it's done so well yeah. so it's I think this is you know it's gonna end up like kung Fu panda uh which if you've never seen uh kung Fu panda legends of awesomeness the the animated series I don't know. uh pretty entertaining and they managed to get somebody who does a very passable jack black impression nice so <laughs> that always helps so moving on now to um another film i caught that but uh, you didn't have a chance to uh one of the most fascinating gimmick films i have seen in a while and i love a good crazy gimmick film particularly kind of a sealed environment Mm -hmm. film uh i am a complete sucker for buried with ryan reynolds where the entire film is set inside of a coffin Mm -hmm. it's stupid but i love it (laughs) um uh you know I, i love that you know even you know films that kind of break that conceit um like um not taken the other one where he's stuck on where he's stuck in a small environment uh <laughs> oh what's his face you know that cavalry yeah, and snakes on a plane snakes on a plane should have kept the conceit should have just been snakes on the plane and nothing else no that would have been perfectly fine but it stupidly added a plot what um, about evelyn did you see evelyn uh evelyn yes Everly. which yes yeah. which you know has you know and i i know joe lynch and i talked to him about it and you know he stuck by the rule that the camera does not leave the apartment apart from one shot and he's like absolutely stood by that and the you right. know people will go to him and say okay so we're going to do this moment in the in the elevator and he's like nope nope no elevator doors closed we don't see yeah. what happens to you you go away and the, apparently drove his camera crew mad he was working with, with serbian camera crew and they were just like what no <laughs> so vanish is is a gimmick movie, and the gimmick is that uh, the action never leaves a van from moment, and it sticks to it completely. And basically, what happened Sounds was that the director spent ages trying to get a film made, and you know was just struggling actor in in L.A. and he just like this isn't happening. So he had this script that he knocked out over a weekend, and he just went, you know what, I can do this. I've got just enough friends that we can just about get away with this, call in some favours, got lucky because he, he went, who's an, a recognisable star that will actually, you know, we've got a decent chance of actually getting them to say yes, Danny <laughs> Trejo. So Danny Trejo, you know, just kind of like pops up. Um, if he's, he's going to do machete, he'll do anything. As a, uh, yeah, he just, well. Well, the second machete. Yeah, well, yeah. yeah, nobody. Yeah, the first one, I, I I understood why that got made and everything like that. But the second one, there was, uh, sorry, there was no excuse for that. There's no reason why <laughs> that film needed to happen. Sorry, <laughs> sorry Robert. Um, but, I'm yeah. I'm going to apologize to Robert. Uh, he, has apolog- he has apologies to make to me, actually, for offending my sensibilities a couple of times. <laughs> but but anyway, anyway. But anyway, so the basic <laughs> idea is that uh, these two guys... Uh, kidnap a cartel boss's daughter and want to hold her hostage and uh, they get uh, they um, uh, they get a, they uh, yes. manage to yes. host, manage to get her in the van oh. it's all it's all day you know and take off with her and uh, everything goes wrong from that point and they uh you know, meet the police in the form of Tony Todd. Yay, the the Tony uh, Todd. cartel is after them. Everything go everything goes wrong. It's weirdly charming, and a lot of that uh, works because of uh, Mariara Walsh, uh, who plays the cartel boss's daughter. Um, and she she has this kind of blasé approach to everything that she's just like, well, my father's going to find you and kill you, and that actually works really, really well. Uh, yeah, this isn't great shakes. It's not big budget, but it's surprisingly effective. Um, yeah, I, 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 you know, if you like low budget little actioners, 
then this is definitely one of the one of the ones to go for. Yeah, and you know what? What what? That's the end of the reviews for the week. Whoa! Whoa! I made it. I know you survived it. Looks like I made it. Okay. Yeah. So now we just have one more thing to do. Oh no! That is the giveaway. Giveaway! The giveaway. Yes, the giveaway. And this week we are giving away a Blu-ray uh-huh. of yeah. Nightcrawler. Stop it. Yes. One of my favorite films of last year. I quit. Can I, mm. can I, can I get it now? No. Oh, dang it. Yeah, I know. Too late. Um, Blu-ray of Nightcrawler. Mm-hmm. Uh, great film. Uh, one of Jake Gyllenhaal's Best performances Love to it. date. One of the best performances of the last year. We want to talk about Oscar snubs, uh, which I don't. Yeah, the Oscars are just they're a democrat, badly democratic I, process. But he are we gonna was. Have this conversation now. I don't think we should. He was. He was <laughs> so good in it. Good in that. Uh, so yeah, we have a copy of uh, Nightcrawler to give away. Um, so we need to come up with a question, and what we need you to do is we need you to follow us uh, on Twitter at one of us net. And send us a tweet with the hashtag Nightcrawler Giveaway. Mm-hmm. And we need to think of a question. Okay. Uh, Ooh. Have you got one? I do. Oh. And it goes back to not your pick, but um, one of your the one Frank Darabont that you liked out of the collection the most, The Majestic. It goes back to that. Mm. Um, how about this? What um, horror cult, um, cult horror actor has a little cameo in The Majestic? Ooh, an actual technical question. Ooh. Is that okay? Yes, that's fine. Sweet. That's fine because we, uh, yeah, so first person to get that answer right. Um, yeah. Cool. We, yep. Yeah. Ooh, we, never, we never have technical questions. We always have weird ones. So, no, that's actually a really good one. Great. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. So, uh, who is it who has... Who is the horror icon character... Uh, actor who has a cameo in The Majestic? Mm-hmm. Um, um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Follow us at one of us net on Twitter. Hashtag Nightcrawler Giveaway. Um, and that's your lot for the week. Thanks so much, Richard, for involving me and well, making me feel so uncomfortable. Well, <laughs> <laughs> we will never give you a double bill of, of, of bad comedy sequels again. Thank um, you, because, you know, you're lucky there wasn't three. I would have walked you, out. She would have walked away. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, I promise that, Richard. <laughs> hush up, you. Back in your you box, were, You were part of the original, original time that that happened, too, sir. Chris. Anywho. Anyway, uh, so um, normally this is a point where Brian says something about uh, no release is too big, no release is too small, from Criterion to Catastrophe. We review them all, but I can never remember that. Uh, so I'd just like to say that I think on behalf of this, uh, it's all at oneofus.net, uh, uh, we'd like to dedicate this, uh, this show to uh, the memory of uh, uh, Leonard Nimoy, who tragically passed away today you know, one of the true greats of science fiction cinema and according to everybody who had any dealings with him just a remarkably nice guy uh, we will miss you Leonard <laughs>